This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to reverse total shoulder arthroplasty and TKA patellofemoral alignment, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And the first question reads, Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty improves kinematics in the rotator cuff deficient joint by what directional change to the center of rotation? And the choices are 1, medial, 2, lateral, 3, posterior, and 4, proximal. So the surgical indications for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty are expanding. In the setting of rotator cuff tear arthropathy, in which the native humeral head migrates superiorly, these implants impart several kinematic advantages. Implant center of rotation medial to the former joint surface improves glenoid component stability as the resultant force vector passes through the component throughout the arc of motion. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Medial. A stable and fixed fulcrum for elevation is provided by matched radius of curvature between the glenoid and humeral components. A more distal center of rotation increases resting length and tone of the deltoid muscle, improving its effectiveness as a shoulder elevator. Medialized joint center of rotation increases the moment arm of the deltoid, requiring less muscle force to produce a given torque. This results in decreased articular shear stress. Moving on to the next question. Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty with a latissimus dorsi transfer would be the most appropriate treatment for which of the following patients? And the choices are 1. Previous shoulder arthrodesis and complete brachial plexus injury. 2. Humeral head avascular necrosis with partial thickness infraspinatus tear. 3. Failed hemiarthroplasty with the inability to perform active external rotation with the arm abducted. 4. Primary shoulder osteoarthritis with 10 degree of glenoid retroversion. And 5. Primary rotator cuff arthropathy with active forward shoulder flexion greater than 100 degrees, and external rotation greater than 50 degrees. So a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty with a latissimus dorsi transfer would be most appropriate in a patient with failed shoulder hemiarthroplasty and the inability to perform active external rotation with the arm abducted. So the correct answer to this question is 3, failed hemiarthroplasty with the inability to perform active external rotation with the arm abducted. Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty has become the mainstay of treatment for rotator cuff arthropathy. In the presence of severe loss of active elevation and external rotation, combined latissimus dorsi transfer and reverse total shoulder arthroplasty can restore elevation and external rotation respectively. This may be used in the primary or revision setting. Frankel et al. report the results of 60 patients with rotator cuff deficiency and glenohumeral arthritis who were followed for a minimum of two years. All were treated with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Their study showed that forward flexion increased from 55 to 105 degrees and abduction increased from 41 to 102 degrees. Bolo et al. followed 45 patients with severe cuff tear arthropathy and advanced atrophy slash fatty infiltration of the infraspinatus or teres minor muscles. All patients were treated with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty and a modified lapiscopo procedure, that is a latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer. Mean active elevation increased from 74 degrees preoperatively to 149 degrees postoperatively, and external rotation increased from negative 21 to 13 degrees. Moving on to the next question. The best candidate for a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is a patient with rotator cuff tear arthropathy with... And the choices are 1. Anterior superior escape, 
two, rheumatoid arthritis, three, an acromial stress fracture, four, a centered head and an external rotation lag sign of 50 degrees, and five, active forward elevation of 130 degrees. So a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is relatively contraindicated in patients with acromial stress fractures and rheumatoid arthritis. A patient with active forward flexion to 130 degrees is better treated with a hemiarthroplasty because the motion already exceeds the average forward elevation attained in most studies using the reverse prosthesis. A centered case of rotator cuff tear arthropathy is also better treated with a hemiarthroplasty, especially in patients with a large external rotation lag sign because the reverse prosthesis has been shown to decrease active external rotation. However, hemiarthroplasties have not performed well in patients with anterior superior escape, and in this group of patients, the reverse prosthesis is the best. So the correct answer to this question is one, anterior superior escape. Moving on to the next question, what are the proposed biomechanical advantages of the Gramont reverse total shoulder arthroplasty when compared to a standard shoulder arthroplasty? And the choices are one, lateralization of the center of rotation, lengthening the deltoid and decreasing the deltoid moment arm. Two, lateralization of the center of rotation, shortening the deltoid and decreasing acromial stress. Three, lateralization of the center of rotation, lengthening the deltoid and increasing the transverse force couple. Four, medialization of the center of rotation, lengthening the deltoid and increasing the deltoid moment arm and five, medialization of the center of rotation, shortening the deltoid and decreasing acromial stress. So the Gramont reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is designed to medialize the center of rotation, thereby increasing the deltoid moment arm and lengthening the deltoid. So the correct answer to this question is four, medialization of the center of rotation, lengthening the deltoid and increasing the deltoid moment arm. Moving on to the next question, a 74-year-old man underwent a hemiarthroplasty with acromioplasty for rotator cuff tear arthropathy two years ago. Despite continued therapy, he is still unable to elevate his arm beyond 40 degrees. Attempted elevation is painful and demonstrates bulging in the anterosuperior aspect of his shoulder. Radiographs show a well-positioned hemiarthroplasty without signs of loosening. What is the most appropriate treatment for this patient? And the choices are 1. Conversion to a total shoulder arthroplasty. 2. Conversion to a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, 3. Continued physical therapy, 4. Cortisone injection, and 5. Anti-inflammatory medication. So the patient in the question stem is experiencing anterior superior escape with attempted shoulder elevation. A conversion to a reverse shoulder arthroplasty will provide the stability to allow active elevation without subluxation. Further physical therapy, cortisone injection, or anti-inflammatory medication will not resolve this instability. A total shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated because of the anterior superior escape. So the correct answer to this question is 2, conversion to a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Moving on to the next question, scapular notching following reverse shoulder arthroplasty may be minimized by which technical modification? And the choices are 1, horizontal humeral cut, 2, superior inclination of the base plate, 3, inferior inclination of the base plate, four, use of a 36 millimeter glenosphere, and five, use of a retentive polyethylene liner. So biomechanical studies have shown that a 10 degree inferior inclination may decrease scapular notching, whereas superior inclination may worsen notching. Scapular notching has been recognized as a complication following reverse shoulder arthroplasty. 
mechanical abutment of the humeral component possibly leads to erosion of the anterior-inferior scapular neck, with progressive vulnerability of the inferior base plate screws. A horizontal humeral cut does not affect notching because the humeral component causes the notching, not the bone on the humerus. Glenosphere size has not been shown to correlate with scapular notching. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Inferior inclination of the base plate minimizes scapular notching following reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Moving on to the next question. Deltoid denervation is a contraindication to which of the following procedures? And the choices are 1. C56 anterior cervical discectomy infusion. 2. Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. 3. Shoulder arthrodesis. 4. Biceps tenodesis and 5. Arthroscopic subacromial decompression. So deltoid denervation is an absolute contraindication for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, making 2 the correct answer to this question. Distal displacement of the center of joint rotation increases the lever arm of the deltoid and also recruits portions of the anterior and posterior heads of the deltoid to act as abductors of the arm, permitting elevation above shoulder height. Failure of the deltoid to function correctly will limit patient outcomes and can even lead to implant instability. The study by Gerber and Below covered the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty implant, including design, indications, and outcomes. They note that reverse total shoulder arthroplasty has become popular for use for more than rotator cuff tear arthropathy. Its uses include treatment of failed conventional total shoulder arthroplasties, rheumatoid arthritis in patients with an irreparable cuff tear, proximal humerus tumors, and proximal humeral fractures with anterior superior escape. The study by Matson et al. is a review of the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. It reviews complications of this prosthesis such as aseptic loosening, instability, glenosphere dissociation, humeral disassembly, infection, humeral fracture, neuropraxia, and scapular notching. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following patient scenarios is most appropriate for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. A 40-year-old laborer with severe glenohumeral arthritis and irreparable rotator cuff tear. 2. A 40-year-old with a painful proximal humerus malunion. 3. A 75-year-old woman with severe arthritis and active overhead motion. 4. A 75-year-old man with painful arthritis and a massive irreparable rotator cuff tear. And 5 failed hemiarthroplasty due to significant glenoid wear. So again, the indications for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty include symptomatic arthritis in an elderly person with an irreparable cuff tear with evidence of arthropathy, and the patient must have a functioning deltoid. There is concern for glenoid component loosening in younger, more active patients. But the correct answer to this question is for a 75-year-old man with painful arthritis and a massive irreparable rotator cuff tear is the most appropriate candidate for a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty of the choices listed. Drake et al. found that, quote, in short-term follow-up, the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty relieves symptoms and restores function for patients with cuff tear arthropathy and irreparable rotator cuff tears with pseudoparalysis that is preserved deltoid contraction but loss of active elevation. Severely impaired deltoid function, an isolated supraspinatus tear, and the presence of full active shoulder elevation with a massive rotator cuff tear and arthritis are contraindications to reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Goutalier describes good results for a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty in patients with a superiorly migrated humeral head and abnormal cuff function. Moving on to the next question. 
Superior placement of the base plate during reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is a known technical risk factor for which of the following complications? And the choices are 1. Inferior acromial erosion, 2. Humeral component loosening, 3. Infection, 4. Inferior scapular notching, and 5. Superior scapular notching. So inferior scapular notching is a common complication of reverse shoulder arthroplasty that occurs most often due to superiorly placed glenoid components on the native glenoid. This allows hinging and notching inferiorly of the humeral component during shoulder movement, leading to scapular notching inferiorly. Simovich et al. demonstrated that superior positioning of the glenoid component as well as superior tilt of the component with respect to the scapula were factors that led to scapular notching. Patients with this radiographic finding also had poorer clinical outcomes. Gerber et al. provide a review on this surgical technique. They describe its biomechanical principles of moving the center of rotation more medial and distal, as well as implanting a larger glenoid hemisphere to allow increased deltoid function. They also warn of the procedure's high complication rates, which are approximately three times that of conventional arthroplasty. Attention to technical detail is needed to reduce high complication rates. Moving on to the next question. Early reverse total shoulder designs, that is before the development of the Gourmand-style prosthesis, had a high failure rate due to early loosening of the glenoid component. What biomechanical feature accounted for this problem? And the choices are 1. Glenoid component did not have a neck. 2. Humeral component was too horizontal. 3. Center of rotation was too lateral. 4. Center of rotation was too anterior. And 5. Center of rotation was too inferior. So early reverse ball and socket designs failed because their center of rotation remained lateral to the scapula, which limited motion and produced excessive torque on the glenoid component, leading to early loosening. The first modern reverse prosthesis was designed by Paul Grammont. According to Below et al., Grammont's design introduced two major innovations. One, a large glenoid hemisphere with no neck, and two, a small humeral cup almost horizontally oriented with a non-anatomic inclination of 155 degrees, covering less than half of the glenosphere. This design medializes the center of rotation compared to earlier versions, which minimizes torque on the glenoid component. Furthermore, the humerus is lowered relative to the acromion, restoring and even increasing deltoid tension. The Grammont reverse prosthesis imposes a new biomechanical environment for the deltoid muscle to act, thus allowing it to compensate for the deficient rotator cuff muscles. According to Gerber, moving the center of rotation more medial and distal as well as implanting a large glenoid hemisphere that articulates with a humeral cup in 155 degrees of valgus are the biomechanical keys to sometimes spectacular short to midterm results. So again, the correct answer to this question is 3. The center of rotation was too lateral in early reverse total shoulder designs. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is considered a contraindication to the use of a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Prior shoulder joint infection, 2. Pseudoparalysis, 3. Prior partial acromioplasty, 4. Absent glenohumeral joint space narrowing, and 5. Axillary neuropathy. So the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty depends on a functioning deltoid muscle which is innervated by the axillary nerve to restore elevation for the patient. So the correct answer to this question is 5, axillary neuropathy. Pseudoparalysis is an indication for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Acromioplasty has not been correlated with poor results with the reverse shoulder arthroplasty. As long as the patient does not have an active infection, prior infections are not a contraindication. 
patients can still have pain and pseudoparalysis from chronic rotator cuff tear despite having normal cartilage, and they will still benefit from a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty if other treatments have failed. And the final question for this topic, complications following a reverse shoulder prosthesis occur more frequently when performed for what diagnosis? And the choices are one, rotator cuff arthropathy with superior escape, two, massive rotator cuff tear with osteoarthritis, three, fracture dislocation of the glenohumeral joint, four, a four-part proximal humerus fracture, and five, failed shoulder arthroplasty. So revision following failed shoulder arthroplasty is associated with the highest complication rates, including dislocation, loosening, and decreased function. However, when performed for rotator cuff tear arthropathy or failed rotator cuff repairs, the complication rate is reasonably low. The complication rate is unknown when the reverse total shoulder is used for fracture dislocation or acute four-part fractures of the proximal humerus. Moving on to the next topic of TKA patellofemoral alignment, the first question reads, internal rotation of the femoral component in primary TKA may lead to which of the following? And the choices are one, a net lateral patellar tilt and increased lateral subluxation, two, a decreased Q angle, three, patella baja, four, a loose medial compartment and tight lateral compartment, and five, balanced medial and lateral flexion gaps. So internal rotation of the femoral component results in lateral patellar tracking slash tilt and can increase lateral patellar subluxation due to an increase in the Q angle. Alcott et al. performed 100 consecutive cruciate retaining TKAs to determine the most appropriate method for femoral alignment necessary to create a rectangular flexion gap. The transepicondylar axis was most accurate in creating a balanced flexion space. However, taking 3 degrees external rotation off the posterior condyles was the least consistent, especially in knees in valgus. Heisterbeek et al. performed the balance gap technique on 83 TKAs and found no difference in femoral component rotation of knees with or without ligament releases in extension. They also concluded that preoperative alignment had no influence on femoral component rotation. Moving on to the next question, which of the following factors most places the knee at risk of patellar maltracking in total knee arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Thickness of patellar resection, 2. Cruciate retaining component, 3. Medial placement of patellar component, 4. Preoperative patellar tilt, and 5. Lateral placement of patellar component. So level 4 evidence by Kawano et al. found that lateral patellar component position has been shown to directly correlate with lateral subluxation and maltracking. The study also found that there was no significant influence of the thickness of the patellar resection and preoperative patellar tilt on postoperative patellar tracking. Avoiding implantation of the patellar component in a lateral position is paramount to tracking. An ideal percentage for patellar component placement was calculated as 40 to 45% with the following equation. Distance of medial resected edge to central peg over the length of patellar resection surface times 100. So again, the correct answer to this question is 5. Lateral placement of the patellar component is the factor that most places the knee at risk of patellar maltracking in total knee arthroplasty. Moving on to the next question. A medial parapatellar approach is used to perform a total knee arthroplasty, including patellar resurfacing. The patient now reports anterior knee pain with stair climbing and rising from a chair. Radiographs show lateral subluxation of the patella on the merchant view. Which of the following is a potential cause for the problem? And the choices are 1. External rotation of the tibial component, 2. Posterior translation of the femoral component, 
3. Decreased composite thickness of the resurface patellar component. 4. Lateral placement of the tibial component. And 5. Internal rotation of the femoral component. So lateral subluxation of the patella following total knee arthroplasty has several possible causes, including internal rotation of the femoral component, internal rotation of the tibial component, and increasing the patellofemoral space, either increasing the composite thickness of the patella or anterior translation of the femoral component. So of the choices listed, 5. Internal rotation of the femoral component is a potential cause of the symptoms for the patient in the question stem, making it the correct answer to this question. Increasing the patellofemoral space leads to increased tension on the lateral patellofemoral retinaculum when a medial parapatellar approach is used. Increased tension in the lateral soft tissue tether can cause lateral subluxation. Placement of the femoral and tibial components to the most lateral aspect of the cut surfaces helps to ensure the tibial tubercle is medialized appropriately to avoid lateral subluxation of the patellar component. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following aids in correction of patellar tracking after total knee arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Internal rotation of the femoral component. 2. Internal rotation of the tibial component. 3. Increasing size of the tibial component. 4. Medialization of the patellar component. And 5. Joint line elevation. So correct patellofemoral tracking has proven to be a crucial aspect in TKA because a large percentage of problems after TKA are related to the patellofemoral articulation. External rotation of the femoral and tibial components has been shown to aid in tracking. Likewise, medialization of the patellar button aids in patellar tracking and prevention of lateral subluxations and dislocations. So the correct answer to this question is 4, medialization of the patellar component. Attention to the distal femoral cut is critical in maintaining the joint line and preventing patella baja or alta. Tibial sizing, however, is not directly related to patellar tracking after TKA. Moving on to the next question, which of the following surgical maneuvers is most likely to enhance proper patellar tracking during total knee arthroplasty and minimizes the need for a lateral retinacular release? And the choices are 1. Use of a mobile bearing prosthesis, 2. Anterior placement of the tibial tray, 3. Internal rotation of the femoral component, 4. Internal rotation of the tibial component, and 5. External rotation of the tibial component. So slight external rotation of the tibial component medializes the tibial tubercle and helps reduce the tendency for lateral patellar maltracking. Mobile bearings have not been shown to improve patellar tracking. Internal rotation of the tibial or femoral component will accentuate patellar maltracking. AP positioning of the tibial tray will affect the force across the patella, but is not likely to affect patellar tracking. Moving on to the next question. Implant position at the time of primary total knee arthroplasty to optimize patellar tracking includes which of the following? And the choices are 1. External rotation of the femoral and tibial components. 2. Internal rotation of the femoral component and external rotation of the tibial component. 3. Internal rotation of the femoral and tibial components. 4. Medialization of the femoral component. And 5. Lateralization of the patellar component. So component rotation is a critical factor to optimizing patellar tracking at the time of primary and revision total knee arthroplasty. Both the femoral and tibial components should be externally rotated, whereas the patellar components should be medialized. So the correct answer to this question is 1. External rotation of the femoral and tibial components. Moving on to the next question. Internal rotation of the femoral component during total knee arthroplasty can result in which of the following? And the choices are 1. Increased need for lateral release. 2. Decreased postoperative pain. 3. Increased polyethylene thickness. 
four, decreased post-operative Q angle, and five, elevation of the native joint line. So internal rotation of the femoral component during total knee arthroplasty causes increased lateral patellar subluxation forces, which effectively increases the Q angle. Femoral component rotation in isolation does not affect the position of the joint line or dictate the necessary polyethylene thickness. Internal rotation of the femoral component can be a source of increased pain postoperatively. Soda et al. compared the rates and results of lateral release before and after femoral component placement. The rates of lateral release in internally rotated femoral components was 24% for varus deformities and 33% for valgus deformities. When the femoral component was externally rotated, based off the transepicondylar axis in 246 TKAs, lateral release rates of 7% in varus deformities and 29% in valgus deformities were noted. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Internal rotation of the femoral component during total knee arthroplasty can result in increased need for lateral release. Moving on to the next question. The posterior condylar axis may be used to determine the rotation of the femoral component in total knee arthroplasty. Which of the following describes the normal relation of the posterior condylar axis? And the choices are 1. Parallel to the transepicondylar axis. 2. Perpendicular to the anterior posterior axis, also known as Whiteside's line. 3. 3 degrees externally rotated to the transepicondylar axis, 4, 3 degrees internally rotated to the transepicondylar axis, and 5, 7 degrees externally rotated to the transepicondylar axis. So to recreate an appropriate rectangular flexion gap, the femoral component should be aligned parallel to the transepicondylar axis. The transepicondylar axis is perpendicular to the anterior-posterior axis, otherwise known as Whiteside's line. The posterior condylar axis is normally 3 degrees internally rotated to the transepicondylar axis, making 4 the correct answer to this question. Thus, the posterior femoral cut should be made in 3 degrees of external rotation from the posterior condylar axis in order to produce a rectangular flexion gap. Moving on to the next question. A standard total knee is performed on a 56-year-old female using spinal anesthesia and a tourniquet. After cementation of all the components, the patella is noted to sublux laterally during range of motion. The alignment and rotation of the femoral, tibial, and patellar components all appear perfect. The surgeon should now, and the choices are 1, perform a lateral release, 2, revise tibial component into more external rotation, 3, revise the femoral component into more external rotation, 4, revise the patellar component to a more medial position on the native patella, and 5, reevaluate patellar tracking after deflation of the tourniquet. So the question stem mentions that all components are in good position. Answer choices 2, 3, and 4 could be correct for a malposition component, but not in this case. Marson et al. in 1999 reviewed a total of 75 TKAs in 67 patients. Patients were divided into three groups. Group 1 were knees that tracked properly both before and after tourniquet release, that is 34 of 75 or 45.3% of the patients studied. Group 2 were knees that maltracked with the tourniquet inflated and, subs and subsequently corrected with the tourniquet released, that is 34 of 75 or 45.3% of the patients. Group 3 were knees that maltracked both before and after tourniquet release, therefore requiring a lateral release, that is 5 of 75 or 6.7% of the patients. They concluded that tourniquet application alters intraoperative patellofemoral tracking during TKA and that when contemplating lateral release, tourniquet deflation and reevaluation of patellofemoral tracking should be considered. So the correct answer to this question is 5. 
reevaluate patellar tracking after deflation of the tourniquet. Likewise, Husted et al. in 2005 in a prospective randomized study of 100 knees reported that if the patella was maltracking, tourniquet deflation led to better patella tracking and saved 5 of 16 patients, or 31% of the patients, from having lateral releases. Moving on to the next question. Failure to identify a hypoplastic lateral condyle in a valgus knee will result in which of the following errors if a posterior condylar referencing guide is used for total knee arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. External rotation of the femoral component, 2. External rotation of the tibial component, 3. Internal rotation of the femoral component, 4. Internal rotation of the tibial component, and 5. Internal rotation of the tibial and femoral components. So failure to identify a hypoplastic lateral condyle will lead to internal rotation of the femoral component if a posterior condylar referencing guide is used for total knee arthroplasty, making 3 the correct answer to this question. The posterior condylar axis of an average knee rests in 3 degrees of internal rotation compared to the transepicondylar axis. Posterior referencing guides are set with 3 degrees of external rotation to compensate for this discrepancy. In the case of a hypoplastic lateral condyle, greater than 3 degrees of internal rotation will be present. If the surgeon does not identify this abnormality and uses a posterior referencing guide, then the cuts will be made with too much internal rotation. Laskin et al. reviewed techniques of total knee arthroplasty. Pertinent to this question, the posterior condylar axis may not be a suitable landmark to guide the posterior cut in patients with the deformity. A hypoplastic lateral condyle will create a cut that is internally rotated if only 3 degrees of external rotation is applied. And moving on to the final question for this topic, malrotation of total knee components leading to patellar tracking problems is best diagnosed by what radiographic modality? And the choices are 1, 3, joint standing x-rays, 2, dynamic examination under anesthesia with fluoroscopy, 3, CT scan of the knee, 4, 45-degree flexed PA x-rays of the knee, and 5, magnetic resonance arthrogram of the knee. So patellofemoral complications, that is patellar subluxation or dislocation, patellar clunk, wear or loosening of the patellar component and patellar fracture are the most common complications after total knee arthroplasty, occurring in 30% of cases. Poor patella tracking or dislocation can be the result of malrotation of the tibial and or femoral components, an excessively tight lateral retinaculum, improper patellar component positioning, patellar component loosening, improper axial orientation of the tibial and femoral components, or an overstuffed joint. Although most of these causes, including improper axial alignment, can be determined from plain radiographs or physical examination, as described by Jizrawi et al., implant rotational malalignment is more difficult to assess with plain radiographs alone. Multiple CT protocols have been devised, however, that enable surgeons to ascertain component malrotation and plan subsequent revisions for symptomatic knees, making answer choice number three, CT of femoral and tibial components, the correct answer to this question. That's all for this question review session about reverse total shoulder arthroplasty and TKA patellofemoral alignment. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.